A new rapid recommendation published on bmj.com looks at the treatment of HIV in pregnant women. It's a controversial topic and the BMJ's rapid recommendation has a different outcome from the WHO's one that went before. To discuss that, I'm joined by one of the authors of that paper, Reid Seminet, who's a physician and methodologist at McMaster University. And also, um, we're joined by Alice Welburn, who's a campaigner for gender, sexual and reproductive health rights in the context of HIV and violence against women, and founder of the Salamander Trust. And Alice has also written an opinion article to go along with that. So, Reid, hello. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Alice, hi there. Hi, thank you. If we start with the actual rapid recommendation that we've just published, Reid, what was the outcome of that? What is the record? recommendations recommendation so the the recommendation is um, for strong recommendation to avoid a common triple therapy regimen um, and that's um, the combination of uh, tenofovir amtricetamine and lopinavir Um, and a weak recommendation meaning a conditional recommendation suggesting that most women would probably prefer um, the older uh, uh, HIV medications, adovidine and lamividine, over uh, the uh, once per day tenofovir and tricetamine pill. Mm. Now, all the recommendations that you've talked about there are obviously in the paper with a big graphic that sort of helps explain um, all of this uh, and the process by which um, you came to 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 that conclusion. Um, but these rapid recommendations, they're usually triggered by a new piece of evidence. So what was that bit of evidence? So late last year, there was a trial called the PROMISE trial that was conducted in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, it included about 800 pregnant women uh, and starting them on antiretroviral therapy. And uh, it randomized the, the women um, to, to one of two um, different antiretroviral combinations. Now, uh, you know, like you said, there's a lot of different names and they're long and complex names. So it's, it's sometimes it's hard to talk about them over the air, but there's uh, a very common, the most common one where about 80% of um, people and women around the world use is called uh, Ju- uh, Juvada as the brand name, but it's um, tenofovir and amtricetabine. Um, so one half the women got that pill and the other half uh, took a twice-day medication called AZT or Zidavidine and Lamivudine at 3TC, which is an older combination. And what the PROMISE trial um, they initially was looking to see if, uh, if there was any differences in transmission of HIV, vertical transmission to the baby. And there was no difference. The rates were very low in both groups. Um, but it was a surprising finding. Uh, was that it suggested that actually in the pill that most women are taking around the world, the Truvada, um, there may be an increase in early neonatal deaths and very early uh, or very early preterm delivery before 30 weeks, 34 weeks gestational age. So uh, I think there was some initial concern and um, around that, uh, you know the safety of the drug and it was presented at a conference and um, uh, earlier on last year and um, created some some academic discussion about 
you know, whether it's safe or not. There's some discussion about, um, you know, maybe it was a drug interaction that was causing it. Maybe there was there was other reasons that were idiosyncratic to the trial that were causing it. And there's a lot of academic discussion around it. But uh, ultimately, the the guidelines that most people follow, which are the WHO guidelines, um, came out later that year, and and they didn't change, or they actually changed the recommendation to recommend the same once per day drug regimen for um, everybody, men, women, child, um, adults around the world, and it included that drug uh, um, <coughs> that had that signal for harm. Um, and so we decided to kick off the rapid recommendations process at that point to have a bigger and broader look at the entire literature to bring in women uh, who have faced or might face that decision about what antiretroviral therapy to use in the future um, and to decide uh, or to come up with sensible recommendations about um, um, uh, to empower women to choose exactly what regimen they might want based on the best current evidence. Was that a new um, signal? Was, was this the first time that any problem with those drugs had been identified? You know, it, it was a new signal. It was the first randomized trial in uh, conducted in pregnant women um, with that drug. And so, um, you know, it's a problem with, with pregnancy in general where actually pregnant women are usually excluded from randomized trials. And so you know, there's a huge body of evidence around this drug, but uh, uh, very seldomly were, were pregnant women included at all and almost never were they a focus or were there enough pregnant women in the trials to actually make any meaningful conclusions about them. And so in pregnancy, this was the first sort of signal that uh, that, that, that might be the case. Yeah, so, so you've come up with this recommendation that perhaps if you're pregnant and... Um, worried about this that you would maybe choose not to to go on those particular drugs um which as you say differs from the who's um recommendation so i was just wondering uh-huh. is that different controversial is that something that um that so, will, will cause problems so it's, uh, it certainly is controversial and certainly might you can imagine that um, from a programming standpoint, to have a one pill once a day medication um, um, for every uh, person with HIV is is very convenient and potentially cost saving in some circumstances. Um, and, and that was part of the reason why uh, uh, that the, you know the one pill once a day combination is uh, recommended for everybody. Um, you know the 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 other thing is that. The evidence, the, the quality of the evidence that um, uh, showed that there might be an increase in stillbirth and, and early neonatal mortality, as well as early preterm delivery with the drug, um, you know, it's not certain. So it's not high quality evidence. You know, the, the, the numbers in the trial are pretty low um, and it's only a single trial. And so, um, you know, we rated the quality of the evidence as low to moderate, meaning that um, it's, it's, it may or it probably um, has these adverse effects that we can't be certain. Um, and so because of that, there's some controversy around, uh, you know, is that enough to, to act on and to change all these recommendations and to change the, the, the programming? Um, um, yeah. Now, Alice, uh, as we'll, we should bring you in at this point, um, 
as you heard, you know, part of the decision-making process uh, for this rapid recommendation um, was to include values and preferences um, of the women who'd be treated. Um, and that was a concern that people had about um, the WHO's well, approach to, to creating their recommendations um, and the final recommendation um, before this point. So I was just wondering if you could sort of talk us through that. Sure. So I think there are a number of different strands here which are quite bigger than, than this particular um, set of uh, events. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things which it, it uh, throws up for me is that the way in which um, guidelines are developed uh, and there are very strict um, formatting for, for doing that, quite rightly so, and everybody wants rigour, is that we have a hierarchy of evidence where we have systematic reviews and RCTs, randomised controlled trials at the top, and then a whole variety of experimental, quasi-experimental, uh, different types of research, and then case studies, and then anecdote right at the bottom um, of this pyramid. And the the, the 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 difficult thing is then that um, when people put such a gold standard on RCTs um, or systematic reviews of RCTs, um, and yet the irony is, you know, as as this has seen and as we have seen in so many different ways over the years, actually involving people who are um, whom you're wanting to support most through the guidelines is actually key to making the guidelines meaningful to them and usable um, you know the the medication or whatever most most effective and most usable by them you know there's so much now which is being written um, in different fields recognizing this huge need for um, people-centered care patient-centered research whatever yeah. you call it but really really we need to think about you know um, un unpacking that onion of the yeah. of the research paradigm yeah I think you're absolutely right um, um, Alice about that and and uh, you know I think there's a movement I, I hope there's a movement now to, to recognize the importance of each individual's you know own values and preferences and autonomy in the process of, of creating research and of adapting research I mean I, you know evidence I think in itself is is completely meaningless unless it's put in the context of each individual's values and preferences. And you know, for guidelines, which aim to make recommendations on a bigger scope, um, it's a challenge because you know, really, at the at the end of the day, it you know, the, especially in, in my experience as a as a clinician, the, you know, each different ind individuals are are likely to choose different treatment options, for example, or different paths and courses when they're presented with exactly the same evidence. Um, and so, you know, for us, uh, you know, who who in this context are our guideline makers, we 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 are trying to recognize that, and I think it's a challenge. But we what we did was we you know we included um, women who who are living with HIV and have had children or are thinking of having children, and we went through the process of um, of of doing a systematic review as well as the qualitative literature of women's values and preferences and, and looking exactly what, at what they wanted. And then at the BMJ side as well, um, you know, everything was peer reviewed by, by um, women living with HIV. So there's, a, there's, 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 there's really community input, hopefully at every stage. 
But at the end of the day, the goal isn't to make, for us anyways, the goal isn't to make a broad sweeping um, declaration about, about the evidence. It's more about empowering, you know, showing the evidence and putting in context and hopefully empowering um, the, the people on the ground to make decisions for themselves about what to do based on their own, you know, values and preferences. Um, mm. And and I think, you know, from a guideline perspective, there's different perspectives. And the public health perspective that the WHO takes is one, I think, valuable and important perspective. But um, sometimes that, that can overshadow the, the end conflict, frankly, with the patient perspective or the person perspective. And the human rights perspective. Right. I mean, I, I think that that was what was so great about what you did, that, you know, you did have the values and preferences component in there very strongly. And, you know, happily, there is a recent example of that happening also in terms of WHO guidelines, because uh, we were involved over the last few years in a global values and preferences survey on the section reproductive health and rights of women living with HIV, which has now fed into uh, the new WHO guideline on that topic. And in, in that guideline, basically, um, a woman-centred approach is 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 just totally central to the, to the whole thing. And the results of our um, Global Values and Preferences Survey are presented side by side with the results of the systematic reviews in relation to each issue which is addressed in that new guideline. So, you know, it's really great that, that we have that now as a as an example of how these guidelines can be produced very much um, rooted in in um, the values and preferences of basically the women who in the UK we we call them now experts by expertise basically because right. you know we've lived we've I'm I'm living with HIV <laughs> I've been HIV positive since 1992 so you know over 25 years so we do know a little bit about you know, what these guidelines are supposed to be about. Absolutely. Right. Um, I mean, Alice, I just wanted to pick up on that. I mean, you, as I said at the beginning, you, you can campaign on this. Um, and I'm just wondering if HIV and pregnancy is almost a perfect storm when it comes to, to some of these problems. You know, um, AIDS exceptionalism means that treatment can be promoted over, over patient autonomy. And, you know, you just have to look at the, the retrenchment in reproductive rights going around the world to see that pregnancy is used to, to do the same um, in women. So uh, I just wondered how much of these problems do you think are writ large in this, this specific thing and how much of it is more general, um, uh, you know, outside of the, the specific sphere of, of HIV and pregnancy? Ooh, big questions. Well, uh, first of all, um, uh, we know already that um, pregnancy for any woman is a time when um, intimate partner violence can start for her or can um, be can increase. So already uh, pregnancy is a time for a woman where she is both physically going through a lot of changes as uh, as well uh, within herself as well as physically and psychologically and sexually vulnerable. Um, to to violence, so you know that that's already a starting point. Um, secondly, um, in relation to HIV, um, I think it's true to say that still around the world, most women learn that they have HIV during pregnancy because of routine testing for HIV amongst 
context, amongst other things, during pregnancy. Um, and often in a relationship, then it's often the woman in a relationship, in a sexual relationship, who gets to learn of her HIV first, because there isn't that same routine testing for men at any stage of their lives. Um, there may be for men in the military or in the police service, but that apparently is classified information. So no state would release those, those data, even though states, of course, release all the time data on how many um, pregnant women have HIV. Mm. So there's, a, there's an interesting disconnect there based on gender and occupation. Um, but in, in terms of um, what actually happens to a woman then is um, this Global Values and Preferences study that I told you about um, earlier. In that, we, we learned not only was it already known that intimate partner violence, partner violence, sexual violence can increase um, women's vulnerability to HIV and to STIs by a factor of 1.5. And that had already been um, discovered by WHO and London School of Hygiene. But what we discovered in our survey, or rather what we confirmed in our survey um, in a more formal way than we had um, been able to share previously was that intimate partner violence increases for many women or either starts for many women or increases for many women on diagnosis. But what was really striking about our survey was how um, violence in healthcare settings shot up after diagnosis. Um, and, you know, this, this, I'm sorry. What do you mean by violence in a healthcare setting? What does that, what does that cover? Well, it covers a whole raft of different things. I mean, worst scenario physically is that a lot of women around the world have experienced forced or, co or coerced sterilization um, after delivery. Um, and in fact, colleagues in Namibia took the Namibian Ministry of Health to court over this and finally won after a long protracted battle. Um, because they were basically forcing women to sign on the dotted line in the labour ward while they were in labour to say that they would um, have be sterilised. So that that's the worst case scenario. Um, but there are there are many many examples around the world. So you know what is really fundamental here, I think, is this this whole issue around trust. And you know if a woman is scared of going to a healthcare setting for fear of how she's going to be treated. Basically, that actually means that she she isn't lost to follow up. She hasn't failed to start her treatment. She's actually been bullied out of care, and the you know the the retention in care is surely the responsibility of the the individuals or the organisation that have more power in any situation. And in this context, that is the healthcare uh, setting and the healthcare providers. Now there are, you know, there are loads of fantastic healthcare providers around the world and amazing people who do phenomenal things, but at the same time, sadly, there are a lot of women who are experiencing that lack of trust, don't want to go near the healthcare setting, for fear of how they're going to be treated, who's going to find out, what's going to happen as a consequence, and so, you know, then if we discover in a situation like this that for convenience sake, um, women are being given medication which could actually affect the the chances of survival of their child you know we've got a challenge here because there's a potential huge 
extra lack of trust being built into the system. You know, I, I, I can't tell you how much I've been, you know, going through this process and, and having worked so closely with, with the, you know, some of the, the wonderful people on the, on the panel, um, Alice. And, you know, I, I, dare I said, I think I've, I've used in previous research articles the, the loss to follow up and, the, you know, the experience terms before. And, I'm, you know, I, I, it's been a great learning process for me. But, you know, I think a lot of this is, is really 